Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to Natasha Varner about her new book, La Raza Cosmetica, Beauty, Identity, and Settler Colonialism in Post-Revolutionary Mexico. Natasha Varner, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Natasha, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. I, um, my name is Natasha Varner. I live in Seattle, Washington now. Um, I'm originally from Flagstaff, Arizona, um, and spent most of my life there. Um, I currently work at an organization called Densho, which is focused on Japanese American history. Um, and I really love doing that because it bridges my interest in history with social justice, and we do a lot of work around um, immigrant rights. The organization is focused on documenting the history of Japanese American incarceration um, through oral histories and other archives, but do a lot to draw parallels between that historical injustice and things that are happening now. Um, So that's really important work to me. And of course, this book that we're uh, here to talk about has been Uh, a project that's been near and dear to my heart for the past decade or so. So it's exciting to see it out in the world. And um, I'm really looking forward to getting to talk to you more about it. Wonderful. And how did you come to write La Raza Cosmetica? Uh, So this project came about um, when I was... I was kind of debating whether or not I wanted to continue in academia. I had just finished a master's degree in Latin American studies, and I was working for um, a project called First Peoples, New Directions in Indigenous Studies, which was a Mellon-funded project um, to produce books by first-time authors in the field of Indigenous studies. So I was the program coordinator for that. And, you know, I was kind of thinking a lot about Mexican history still um, after coming out of my master's program, thinking I didn't want to do academia anymore. Um, but I was as I was getting more and more engaged in the field of indigenous studies and going to a lot of conferences, and um, you know, this was right about the time that NISA was emerging as a professional organization. I was going to those conferences and getting engaged in that field. And, you know, it just really struck me that a lot of the conversations that were happening in that field applied to patterns I'd seen in Mexican history, you know, specifically around nationalism and national identity in the post-revolutionary era. And so I just had this realization that, you know, I I actually have something to say um, that's not being said yet um, about Mexican history through this lens of indigenous studies and settler colonialism Um, So, you know, I was also taking classes at that time, kind of, again, toying with the idea of of pursuing a PhD, but not sure if I was going to do that. But 
in one of those classes, um, I focused a, a semester research project on the Miss Universe pageant, um, which Miss Mexico won that year. And it just like crystallized for me that a lot of these discourses and patterns um, were still very much relevant today. Um, and so once I had that realization and you know saw that they were playing out in beauty pageants and you know really interesting and, and bizarre and campy ways, uh, I realized I had a, a project I really wanted to pursue. So um, went ahead and and you know applied and went through the PhD program and knew all along I really wanted this to be a, a book in the end. Um, so even as I was writing the dissertation, made really deliberate choices, um, you know, in terms of not putting some things in the dissertation and um, kind of a long-term plan for what this project would look like as a book. So that's the the long answer. Um, but yeah, this is um, 10 years in the making. So it's exciting to be at this stage where it's out in the world, exciting and, and kind of terrifying, but um, yeah, happy to be at this point. I'm excited that it's out in the world too. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So immediately following the Mexican Revolution, cultural elites idealized and pursued a Mexican future defined by mestizaje and modernity. Both of these futures in their minds hinged upon the gradual integration and erasure of indigenous peoples, especially women. In the immediate post-war years, these settler colonial currents manifest themselves in the India Bonita pageant. Can you tell us a little bit more about the purpose behind the pageant and how it came to narrowly redefine and idealize the quote-unquote authentic indigenous woman? Yeah, um, so this pageant that I um, talk about in chapter one of the book um, was launched by a, a daily newspaper, El Universal, in 1921. Um, and the you know stated mission of the pageant um, when they announced it was to find the prettiest Indian in all of Mexico. Um, and the way that played out over the next several months, it, it became a, a serialized pageant. And so every day or every couple days, um, you'd get a different portrait and a little write-up about contestants appearing in the newspaper. Um, you know, what, like looking through this, this archive of the pageant uh, was really interesting because what you see is this vast diversity of indigenous women's lives um, in the years immediately following the revolution. And, you know, this is really a remarkable in and of itself because there aren't that many um, documented, um, there aren't that, there isn't much in the archives that shows um, what indigenous women in, you know, urban spaces were doing in this particular moment in history. Um, It's hard to find those. So it's a pretty incredible archive just for that reason alone. Um, But despite the fact that it shows, you know, this this great diversity of how indigenous women were um, making their their way through the world, you know, as Mexico was trying to rebuild after the revolution, um, the overarching theme of the pageant is um, tends to um, prioritize a certain type of indigenous woman um, that fit into stereotypes about what traditional and submissive indigenous women look like. Um, and so even though you see this great diversity of women throughout the course of the pageant, what you see at the very end is 
um, you know, a handful of contestants who have very similar, um, you know, hairstyles and dress styles. And um, so it really privileges um, a very specific and kind of fixed notion of what it means to be an Indigenous woman. Um, And so that's why I argue that the pageant, you know, even though it was aiming to kind of represent Indigenous women and and honor them, um, what it ultimately did was use this really narrow lens uh, that was wrapped up in ideas about what authentic authentic indigeneity looked like. And this was informed by, you know, anthropologists who were involved in this project as panel judges, um, specifically Manuel Gamio. you know, so it really narrowed what the public saw as being an authentic Indigenous woman. Um, and so ultimately, I argue this was a project of erasure, even though that erasure came about through um, representation that that's that was otherwise pretty unprecedented. So it, it really just kind of highlights um, the fact that throughout this whole history that I look at, there were just so many paradoxes like that, where there was like hypervisibility but also that hypervisibility ultimately lent itself to this bigger project of erasure and um, yeah, the kind of fixing indigeneity in the past so that idealized mestizaje or the um, you know, idealized mixing of the races um, could be presented as the, the future of Mexico. Yeah, as you point out, India Bonita wasn't the only pageant that idealized and objectified indigenous women. Of the same vein was the Flormas Bahia de Hiro, which originated in Santa Anita. And while the pageant paradoxically sought to, you know, supposedly honor indigenous women and in their communities, it also coincided with urbanization efforts that only selectively incorporated the region's indigenous characteristics into an urban future that was ultimately absence of indigenous presence. What different forms did the pageant take during the 1920s and 1930s? And how did it contribute to projects of defining and discarding indigenous identities? Yeah, so this this pageant is really an interesting one. Um, I found out about it because it often would get conflated with the India Bonita pageant. And so um, people would reference it when I was talking about the India Bonita pageant, but um, I, it took me a minute to understand what was happening because the India Bonita pageant only happened one year and they would be talking about, oh yeah, the India Bonita pageant from 1929. It's like, it wasn't India Bonita pageant in 1929. Um, so anyway, I started digging and found out about this pageant, um, which actually, um, predated, um, colonization of Mexico. It's, it's an ancient, um, spring flower maiden tradition, um, that survived and kind of became like a syncretic practice um, combined with Catholicism um, over the centuries. And then it had mostly died out, not been, um, you know, a major part of of the community's life by the time of um, the revolution, but it was still practiced. It had been somewhat co-opted by the elites um, and and non-Indigenous folks, but it wasn't it was kind of a, a dying tradition in some ways. Um, but in 1923, when uh, people who were invested in this project of nation building were looking for different ways to engage the public and um, 
kind of perform national identity in different ways, um, seized upon this pageant as an opportunity to accomplish some of the same things that the, the India Bonita pageant did in terms of, you know, doing a, a cursory celebration of indigeneity, um, but ultimately kind of marginalizing and, and setting indigeneity apart from what they saw as the the kind of march to the future. Um, and so the pageant 1923 was reinvented and uh, became a, a celebration that was held annually. And again, um, you know, for in many of the years, it, it, it evolved from year to year. It wasn't a static thing at all. Um, but in many of the celebrations over the next several decades, there would be some kind of competition for indigenous dress or um, performance of indigeneity. In some cases, it was around food or um, culinary arts. In some cases, it was around costume or the way uh, um, a station was kind of decorated. Um, so it evolved a lot um, and it ended up really reflecting the way that the city was expanding and growing in the sense that um, as Santa Anita got more and more urbanized, um, you know, beginning in the late 30s and into the 40s, um, this area of the city that had been conceptualized as being a, a locus for tradition and kind of, you know, it had previously been more on the outskirts of Mexico city and it had a big waterway that ran through the neighborhood. And so it was conceptualized as being representative of Me Mexico Viejo or old, old Mexico. Um, but as it became kind of swallowed up by this urban expansion and um, other public health needs took precedence, um, the whole community was transformed and, became less of this idealized uh, place for old Mexico. And in that process, um, it also became a less ideal site for the practice of tradition or things that were conceptualized as being traditional. Um, and so the pageant itself ended up getting moved to Xochimilco, which um, I think we'll talk about more later. It was another area that was conceptualized as being, um, you know, a spot where old Mexico was, was very visible, but the community that, you know, where this pageant and this springtime festival had been in existence in various forms for centuries and have lost their ability to, um, to make claim to it as they, they urbanized. Um, and so it just, the whole pageant kind of shows this, this double bind that um, indigenous peoples found themselves in, in this, in this time period, in the sense that there was a lot of, you know, there was a benefit to the strategic performance of this idealized trope of indigeneity. But then once that trope no longer worked from um, kind of a larger city planning view, it could be used as a way to dispossess indigenous peoples of their, their right to those traditions. Um, I don't know if I'm totally explaining that well. Um, it's, a, it's a complex thing, but it's, it was like the more they perform the traditional role, the more it meant that once 
the space they were performing that in was no longer deemed traditional. Um, it, it kind of underscored and helped justify this logic of, of dispossession from people that were transforming the community and, and in charge of kind of running the city and um, making these decisions. Yeah, for people who have read uh, Phil Deloria or maybe Gene O'Brien's work, that's that's a very familiar idea uh, that you that you share in your book. Mm-hmm. In and chapters, yeah, I just yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Oh, I just want to take the, the moment to say that you know both Gene O'Brien and Phil Deloria have been were major influences and um, just really value their work a lot. I, I talk about this in the inter- introduction, but yeah, thanks for for mentioning them. Yeah, yeah, of course. In chapter three, you turn to films that, though diverse in genre and content, all exploited indigenous women's bodies for the purpose of projecting this quote-unquote idealized mestizo future. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about those films, why you chose to focus on the ones you did, and what they tell us about their audiences. Yeah, so um, I tried to find films that took indigenous women's beauty as it wasn't just like incidental to the film, but kind of a a plot point or um, focused on specifically in in some way. There was one film that was actually a a retelling of the India Bonita pageant um, that I talk a lot about that was produced in 1938. Um, And I tried to pick films from a variety of genres to show how this trope of the India Bonita, um, which, you know, is not, when I, when I use that term, it's not referring to actual indigenous women. It's referring to this invention, um, of a, a stereotype essentially of indigeneity and idealized female indigeneity. Um, but in this chapter about film, I try to show how that, um, idea moved from the realm of beauty pageants and and kind of in-person performances into onto um onto the silver screen and this is another point that i try to make in the book is that you know all this discourse about national identity was coinciding with this huge explosion in technologies that allowed for the reproduction of images Um, So whether that was print or film, um, it really bolstered and amplified these discourses. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why it felt really important to focus on film in this way. Um, And yeah, you know, it was was challenging to to select just a handful of films. I definitely have a lot of uh, pages of discussion about films that I ultimately cut from the chapter. I didn't want to, you know belabor the point too much. Um, but I tried to pick the most representative films from a variety of genres. Um, I think the most challenging one that I worked with was this pornographic film, uh, that I found in the archives when I was doing my dissertation research. And, you know, right when I started this project, I I knew that in addition to looking at beauty pageants, I would be really interested in seeing the other ways that, um, ideals of female indigeneity were manifested in popular culture. So I was really curious about how that might have uh, been trafficked um, 
on the black market. And so I was searching for stuff like this. Um, you know, I thought maybe I would get some like pinup photos or something of like mestiza women dressed as indigenous women. That's what I was anticipating. But um, I ended up finding this film and it was really, it's one of the worst pieces of popular culture I've ever had to look at. And when I first saw it, I, um, it was too much for me to really grapple with it um, and include it in the dissertation because it's, it's just really so dark and, and violent. Um, but I knew that I needed to include it in the book because it's significant for a number of reasons. First of all, it's, um, you know, a rare, very rare film from the 1920s um, or 30s, um, a silent film produced in Mexico. And it's the only film that I've found from that era that features as its lead a woman with visibly indigenous uh, characteristics. And so, you know, it, it felt like a very important piece of popular culture to, to include and write about. Um, and especially the fact that, you know, just really underscores this pattern of sexual violence that indigenous women have been subjected to um, in these processes of colonialism um, and just kind of lays it, lays it out there in a really crass way. Um, so that was a really challenging piece to include, but it felt very important. Um, and I tried to do it with care. Um, and, you know, I think it does tell us, you know, a lot about the audiences. Um, I, I think there's, you know, very little known or written about how um, these kinds of films would have been consumed but looking at the film and the way that men um, are positioned within the film, what it indicated to me was that, you know, this is, this film was made for an audience of more elite, probably mestizo men, um, probably urban men who were, I think I call it sexual slumming in the book. Um, you know, just kind of imagining themselves into these um, spaces that were otherwise taboo or, you know, you wouldn't like openly talk about this, um, but that really replicate this pattern of, of sexual violence. Um, so, yeah. And beyond that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard to in general know what films say about audiences. So I, I focus a lot of the analysis on the films themselves and um, try to do a combination of, you know, close readings of the films as text, um, but also framing them within this historical context in which they were produced. Um, yeah, I think that's, I, yeah, think that's that, I think that answers your question, but let me know if you I missed anything. Yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful. And I do think that you, you know, your treatment of those films, when I was reading your description, I shared the same sentiment of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this, uh, the La Campesina film is real. <laughs> um, but yeah. you, you treat it with such care. And I think that you show, you know, that those are important mediums to explore in this very wide ranging project of, you know, these different ways that indigenous women are portrayed and how they're supposed to be consumed and understood. Um, so, yeah. As you mentioned earlier, and you uh, explain at length in the book, 
Mexican modernization, excuse me, Mexican modernization initiatives often affixed indigenous peoples to distant rural landscapes in order to convey a form of so-called authenticity and deny them of their modernity. That process also comes to play itself out just south of Mexico City in the historically indigenous community of Xochimilco, where an idyllic and storied landscape, and especially indigenous women who actually resided there, became marketing props for international and urban tourism. What did Xochimilco come to represent in the 1940s, and how did indigenous peoples living there respond to changes that directly impacted the region? Yeah, um, so Xochimilco is a really interesting space. Um, You know, it's been long conceptualized as this site of of old Mexico, you know, as as the city grew and urbanized and it was a, a destination for city dwellers to kind of go and recreate and um, it's really defined by this um, major system of waterways that you can kind of take boats through and have a leisurely escape from the stresses of city life. So it, it's long held this role as being kind of a, an escape to old Mexico. Um, and in the period I look at um, after the revolution, it was undergoing this major, um, a lot of, a lot of major changes, you know, it had been impacted by the revolution itself and then um, urbanization demand for water um, in Mexico city and then also major deforestation were causing huge environmental changes to Xochimilco. And there was a lot of panic about, you know, the loss or the potential loss of this really important site. Um, and so, you know, I look at a lot of different, like, people writing kind of mournful odes to Xochimilco and the potential loss and how it's this treasure of Mexico um, but at the same time, you know, just all these competing forces, uh, introducing a lot of change and a lot of threats to the space. Um, some of that changed as Mexico developed its tourism industry. So beginning in the late 1920s, but really into the 1930s and 40s, as the tourism industry took off and became more lucrative, Xochimilco became even more important as a you know, destination for tourists, both from within Mexico and um, international tourists. And so you see this kind of um, tension between what's actually happening on the ground in terms of this space really changing and um, what tourism uh, magnates were trying to portray it as in terms of being this site of tradition and you know, these pristine waterways where you could go and have um, a relaxing getaway. Um, And so you see this tension and what, this is where the the trope of the India Bonita ended up being really critical. Um, Tourism campaigns ended up really centering indigenous women as being this um, symbolism, symbol of purity and tradition. And so you see more and more, um, advertising campaigns and other tourism materials that that center indigenous women um, 
in order to kind of like distract from the fact that this was really an evolving community, um, this, you know, hyper-focus on traditional-looking Indigenous women. Um, And, you know, one thing that's really interesting, I think, you know, on the ground there were a variety of responses in terms of how Indigenous women and all all the people that were um, Native to Xochimilco were responding to this, you know, some strategically engaged with these processes and, you know, found ways to work with the tourism economy. I think, you know, I I think I talk about Xochimilco in almost every chapter. Um, In the chapter about the India Bonita pageant, it's really interesting because early on in the pageant, the newspaper sends a team of reporters out there to find traditional indigenous women. And there's a story about how, you know, they got chased off with a stick, you know, like this woman did not want to participate in their pageant. And, you know, so you see some instances of, yeah, just non, non-compliance in this project. Um, and so there's a huge range. But one thing that I, I found that was interesting was that there were instances where the locals were adopting the language of tourism and um, kind of the way the, the place had been romanticized in the tourist literature. They were adopting that language as an argument for preservation of the canals and um, waterways and of the environment there in general um, through letter writing campaigns. And um, so it shows, you know, just a strategic uh, engagement with these national dialogues. Um, It shows that people who are living there were very aware of how they were being presented um, in tourism literature and other writings and and, uh, media and a really inventive way of reclaiming some of that language and and using it to their benefit. Yeah, and the indigenous communities in Xochimilco obviously aren't the only indigenous peoples doing that at this point in time. You end with this deep read of this woman named Luz Jimenez, um, who lived a somewhat paradoxical life and held a kind of paradoxical image. Um, You know, she's frequently referred to as the most painted woman in all of Mexico. What can Jimenez's successes and struggles at mid-century tell us about the ways that indigenous women navigated the logics of elimination and resisted efforts that sought to objectify and erase their identities, disempower their communities, and dispossess them of their histories. Yeah, so um, Luz Jimenez's story is a really remarkable one. I feel, um, yeah, just a, a lot of um, tenderness for this this chapter because I was able to uh, work with her grandson and... Um, read a lot of her letters that she wrote. And I spent, this chapter wasn't included in the dissertation, but I've spent, you know, the years since I finished the PhD program um, thinking and thinking about her life and writing about it. And it was really hard to strike the right tone because on the one hand, she's this just incredible woman, um, incredibly talented Um you know, native Nahuatl speaker who also had a, a gift for teaching Nahuatl language and 
um, was an artist, a storyteller, um, and was just really gifted in her ability to navigate this post-revolutionary world. Um, you know, she got hired as a model and used that position as a way to educate artists as well. And so in that way, she became a really important teacher and, and component of this milieu of post-revolutionary artists, including Diego Rivera and really the most visible artist in Mexico at that time. Um, but yeah, it also shows the, the double bind that um, indigenous people could find themselves in at that time, because even though she was present and contributing to and shaping um, how indigeneity and how indigenous women were portrayed, um, many of the artists were limited in how they, they didn't present her in any of her complexity. in their portrayals of her. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that her image was so widely reproduced across Mexico city and beyond, um, she, what I, I haven't found records of what her compensation rate was, but whatever it was, um, she was still living in a situation where there were times where she was grappling with extreme poverty and, you know, she, was able to access um, support through some of the artists, specifically Jean Charlot, um, who she had a a long-term friendship with. Um, But, you know, the fact that people like Charlot and Rivera, you know, got the level of acclaim and visibility that they did. And, you know, I don't, several of the people in this um, group of artists weren't, weren't extremely well off themselves, um, at least during this period. Um, but the fact that she was adjacent to that level of visibility and, and success, um, and yet, you know, having to continue to work as a street vendor and um, a domestic servant and really struggling, you see in the letters how much she struggled uh, just with, you know, basic medical expenses for herself and her family. And, you know, she suffered a lot because of lack of access Um, and, you know, developed these deep friendships where she was able to get some support from them, but it was more like a kind of charity. Um, and, And you could tell in her letters that she, you know, it weighed on her to have to ask, um, where, you know, if she had just been like fairly compensated for her work, she wouldn't have been in the position to have to, um, you know, go around asking for for funds to help deal with the medical crisis for herself or her mother, you know, things that came up throughout her life. So it's a really complex story. And yeah, it shows the limits of, you know, engaging with a project like this. Um, She you know, was extremely gifted and and adapted herself to the social situation she found herself in and I think was about as successful as anybody could be in that scenario. Um, But, you know, ultimately the the view that you see of her in all these paintings um, and in the kind of 
representations of her that still exist still end up showing her as um, more of this kind of trope of idealized indigenous womanhood than in any of the vast complexity that her life actually represented. Well, Natasha, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I have one last question for you. What are you working on now? Yeah, um, so I love Mexican history. I don't know that I'll do um, another book on that topic. I I feel like now um, it's more important for me to do more kind of self-reflexive and closer to home research and inquiry. So, um, you know, my family's predominantly Irish American. We're from Arizona. We've been there for since the fifties. Um, and I'm really interested in, um, the history of how the Southwest was settled by health seekers. Um, both sides of my family ended up in Arizona because they had children that had asthma and doctors on the East coast told them, you know, if you don't, if you don't go to Arizona or you don't go to drier climate climate, you know, your kids are going to continue to really suffer, potentially die. Um, and this is part of this long history of people with like lung health issues and disease, tuber- tuberculosis, asthma being sent to the Southwest. Um, and so I, I'm really interested in looking at a history of health seekers, charlatans, and the settlement of the American Southwest um, through this process, beginning probably in the mid 1800s up until the I don't know. I might. I kind of want to bring it up until the uh, to the present. There's all these like weird health spas and that kind of stuff. So, I'm trying to grapple with the the scope of it. But I'm thinking that's where my my research will go next. Um, I'm also really interested in doing more writing about Irish American history in general and Irish American complicity in the projects of settler colonialism and anti-blackness. Um, so that's something that I don't know if that'll be a book or if I'll just continue writing um, shorter articles on that topic. But that's what what feels like um, an important topic of inquiry for me right now. Well, Natasha, those those both sound like great, important topics. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you.